Connor, your doppel your doppelganger looks like he's giving you a back rub. He is. Looks very pleasant. Yeah. He looks very loving, actually. All right. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers. We should just play this whole episode backwards. Can you do that, Connor? Just simultaneously backwards and forwards, just yeah, a low level. That Maybe that's a horrible idea. Probably a horrible <laughs> idea. Uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 114. Today, we are talking about Louis Bunuel's debut movie, Un Chen Angelou, and surrealism in cinema. We're using Un Chen Angelou, which was a short he made in 1929 with Salvador Dali. 20 minutes filled with some, to this day, some of the craziest, most striking imagery that's all mostly linked more by associative and dream logic than it is by narrative logic. But as often happens in surreal cinema, your brain just creates a narrative anyway. And it's crazy to watch surreal movies because you're like, oh, no, I know what this like. I follow that story. It's this. And, you know, David Lynch famously is always surprised when people come up with things and he knows what it means for him, but he'll never tell anyone else, which I think is great because he realizes that the brain and what we do narratively is different, idiosyncratic and subjective for every person. But any Anyway, who is with us today? Oh, hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. It's another day cruising the streets. Cruising the streets of Los Angeles. Cruising the streets of fire? No, just cruising because a certain someone is cruising for a killer. Edwin, you're a quote machine. You should just start talking in uh, movie taglines. That's the general idea, man, because, you know, it's personal. (laughs) I'm Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. This week, I'm going to throw it to Future Connor. Future Connor, what's coming up? Hey, so this Thursday, August 4th, at the Secret Movie Club Theater, we're showing Summertime, a new movie about all these youth poets in L.A., and we're going to actually have some live spoken word and poetry at the event and a Q&A with the director, Carlos Lopez Estrada. So check that out, and don't believe anything edwin tells you wow lost world that's amazing that's so great and as always you can find out everything that we're doing at secretmovieclub.com which is our hub you can get tickets at eventbrite secret movie club and just follow our socials we are really working to actually have a lot of resources and value and fun stuff for you if you're part of our virtual community our international community uh, we are posting every week now a new interview or original production original content so if you're you know not here in the southern california area we want you to engage and if you are then come see some some of our events, be part of our summer speaker series. And, you know, write us if you have ideas about how to make Secret Movie Club the best community of movie makers and movie lovers that welcomes everybody that actually has integrity, but is also cool and interesting and celebrates cinema and gets into cinema and makes cinema. We want to hear it. In 1929, Spaniards Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali, both young men who were spending a lot of time in the Paris of the 1920s, which was going off, by the way. Paris in the 1920s, I don't know what you could say it's akin to today. You could kind of say the Miami or Vegas, but that's not really right because there was a very heavy artistic component to it. So maybe it would be more akin to like what happened in the village in the 50s with the beatniks. In Paris in the 20s, you got James Joyce, you got Ernest Hemingway, you got Gertrude Stein, you got Louis Bunuel, you got Salvador Dali, you got John Dos Passos, you've got these artists, you got Sylvia Beach running Shakespeare and Company, just doing this crazy stuff that was blowing people's minds cinematically, artistically, in literary 
story circles. And that would be akin to what would later happen with Lenny Bruce and Bob Dylan and William Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and just all the folks that were in the village in the 50s and 60s in New York City. Now, Boonwell, who came from a very rigid Catholic upbringing that he rebelled against the rest of his life, Boonwell would famously say constantly, thank God I'm still an atheist. Nevertheless, Boonwell was an incredible vivid dreamer and Dolly was an incredible vivid dreamer and they met on vacation somehow and they just started sharing dreams and Boonwell said, man, I just had this dream where an eyeball got sliced and Dolly was like, I just had this dream where a hand was totally consumed by ants and supposedly Dolly said, we can make a movie out of that. And they did. They took those two images and they made a 20-minute movie called Un Chien Angelou. Essentially, there is kind of a narrative to it, but I don't want to insult Boonwell and Dali by forcing a narrative. You have to see it. You come up with your own thing. But what happens? We meet a man and a woman. They seem to be involved in some frustrated dance of sexuality due to their own societal upbringing and religion and society. They're in a Paris apartment. Meanwhile, weird things are happening, like an eyeball getting sliced and a hand consumed by and then on the street someone gets hit by a car and then there's a kid playing with the hand that turns out in a box meanwhile there are these great inner titles that flash that say things like eight years later 16 hours before and finally next spring and when it goes next spring you see the two characters buried in sand and seemingly dead in a really unsettling image and this movie was released in 1929 paradoxically it was a hit but it was also scandalous. Supposedly a woman miscarried watching it. Uh, people fainted. Maybe most ironically of all, the surrealists expelled Boonwell for this movie. The movie was so popular, the surrealists said it was almost like bullets over Broadway. They were like, well, if people like it, then it can't be good. They said like Boonwell had made a commercial piece of cinema and they expelled him. Well, the joke was on Boonwell because he would become the filmmaker noted for surrealism for the next 50 years. And then David Lynch would pick up that man and then there are other people. But let's start with Un Chien Angelou. What are your thoughts? Edwin wrote a paper on it, which he submitted to me. Thousand words. It was footnoted. I really appreciated the homework on it. I guess I did watch it. I watched it in the restroom. <laughs> As been well intended. Yeah, that's actually very Marcel Duchamp. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, it's nice, nice music. Nice music <laughs> You know? Silent film. But actually, Edwin's right. Boonwell actually played two records, and the version we did did the same thing. He, he played two pieces of music to be desynchronous, and he did it behind the screen. That's pretty cool. Uh, just the scene where you get an eye cut, and then and it cuts to a scene where a donkey... Cloud crossing the moon. Yeah, and the cat's eye. I don't know what was happening, but the plot, it was just like, okay, okay. They getting hit by a car, okay. Hand in the middle of the road, okay. All right. And then they, they're in a sand dead i guess yeah i don't know what i saw but it was cool i guess you could almost consider this the first ever body horror movie too yeah there's for sure there's for sure body horror yeah i don't think uh i don't think i'll any, any of this uh bunuel guy movies uh anytime soon but uh good music though yeah as famously evidenced when we thought you were coming to attend belle du jour which we showed yes last week, and you were like, "No, I'm just here to find my Deep Blue Sea poster." Yeah, yeah, and I did, and I did find it, and I did find a couple other posters of uh, some of the Beverly Hills and uh, Samuel Jackson's uh, movie called Flesh. So, no, fresh, fresh, good stuff, good stuff. Total side note. Roger, who helped us with our Palm Spring 70 millimeter, we're talking about the next one. He informed me there's a porno shot in 70 millimeter. Oh my God, please get it. And I was like, are you kidding me? You're joking. And he said, no, Panorama Blue, 
Everybody right now should YouTube the trailer for Panorama Blue. If you have that sensibility, if you're easily offended, or, or then don't. But Panorama Blue, possibly one of the most hilarious trailers I've ever seen. Literally a porno with scenes. I was a PA on that set. Oh, in 1975? Yeah. Nice. Uh, all right. Other thoughts? Unshan Angelou. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, a commonly screened film student thing, but I think film school 101. Yeah, but it's one of those that it sticks with you. And I think it's one of the things that if, if I were to make a curriculum, like, yeah, you show this, it's very jarring. And to me, there's something about early films from the twenties and thirties that have this kind of mystical quality that make them feel extra real as if the only way I can view this part of history is through these films. And so that makes them somehow true and real. So I chose the background. The thing that haunted me is the first time I saw is the hands more than anything. The image of the hand, which looks very fake in its initial shot, it's still such a strange... I, I read a thing that said it's dream logic with this. This specifically is dream rhythm. The way that it kind of fluctuates between all these things makes it feel like this ever never-ending nightmare. You just keep shifting. Kind of in the way like if you woke up and you were like, oh, had a bad dream. And then you go back to sleep a second later and it just sort of continues. But now it's shifted a little bit. It seems to be kind of that. Like if this was your the way you suffered through a night. But I think it says a lot that it, you know, nearly a hundred years later, it's still just, it's still incredibly effective and um, still confusing people and unsettling. <laughs> also introduced to it in film school, though, actually, I think because I got really into the Pixies in high school, I found out about it early because their song uh, Debaser is uh, based on the short. That was actually how I got introduced. I remember watching it in film school and telling my very old film professor about the Pixies song. My film professor talked about how Bunuel stated that these images didn't necessarily have meaning, that he wasn't about explaining it. But then it becomes a thing where like, so what do these mean to you? What do you guys take from these images? And I was like, well, that seems like a crazy thing to start your lecture with, to be like, the director said these really don't mean anything. And then it's supposed to be about like, you know, this dynamic, but what do you think that they mean? And I thought that was the craziest thing to put on a film studio. Like, wait, you've just told me that the intention was maybe... <laughs> That they don't have to mean anything. I put together a surreal um, pre-show for us this last month, and there's a quote from David Lynch in it. That was so great. Yeah, it was a David Lean masterclass in Britain. And he's just talking about how like sometimes he'll put stuff in his movies where a person will be like, I don't know what that means. And then they'll be in a conversation outside and someone else will say what they think it means. And then that first person will be like, no, wait, it actually means this. And that we oftentimes, there are things in movies, or art in general, where either for a narrative or a style reason, something is done in a surrealistic or a sort of obtuse manner. And I think that like the best ones are the ones where you can sort of look at it and say like, okay, it can kind of mean anything. And not in a way where it's like meaningless, where it's just so full of like personal and subliminal meaning that it becomes almost like a Rorschach test for everybody to sort of see and interpret. And that's where a lot of the fun of that kind of stuff is. Kevin had thoughts too. Was that Kevin? Yeah. Sorry, Connor. Kevin's sleeping on my desk and is snoring so loud. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. Kevin's having a dream right now too. Could you imagine when we get dream cameras? And we go into Kevin's dream and it's not what we thought at all. I like when she dreams about running and she's like. <laughs> this is an aside, but this is a real thing. They did this experiment where they hooked up 
like wires or whatever to like a cat's like visual processing center and showed them images from Indiana Jones. And so we can see the actual image and then what the cat's seeing and the faces that the cat saw were like kind of cat-like. Whoa. It's weird. I think it's just the way that our brains fill in the blanks. That's something that um, people who really get frustrated with dogmatically religious people or God people, like they point out all the time, Carl Sagan famously wrote a short story where like cows, their God was a cow God. And then like dogs, their dog was a dog God. And then everybody's God just sort of looked like them. I think he was just trying to point out the cognitive dissonance that people don't acknowledge when they talk about topics that they think they're being universal about, but they're actually being very local about, and they don't realize they're being very local about it. Uh, so that makes total sense. Like, it's also like when you see Jesus or Buddha represented differently over the world, you know, like he'll be lighter or darker skinned or Buddha will actually look more Indian or Japanese depending on where you are. So I think it's something probably all animals must do maybe is to make it more understandable to us. Um, we showed Boonwell's first three movies, Unshen Anjalu, Lodge Door, which I love. It's not quite a feature film. It runs about an hour, but it plays like Unshen Anjalu, although it has an even stronger narrative, whatever Boonwell says about it. And it also has to do with sexual frustration. Basically, this man and this woman just want to get it on, and they're constantly being like prevented from doing it. It's almost a proto-exterminating angel or discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. It's very, very funny. But every time they want to have sex, people pull them apart, or they're priests, or there's a party, or there's a fight. And then finally, when they have privacy to do it, this conductor shows up with a headache, and the woman wants to get it on with him, which is almost like a punch line thing after this whole hour-long thing and the guy goes crazy and then we showed Las Herdes which is this devastating documentary about one of the most impoverished parts of Spain and, and I just want to say really quickly that I think what separates Boone well and David Lynch I want to say this both of them from I think people that do weird or even Cronenberg from weirdness for or uh, French director Julia de Cornet right now who has made two films Raw and Titan which won the Palme d'Or last year I think one of the things that's key what I was trying to get at was Boonwell's third film, Las Herdes, is a very socially committed, yet surreal and deadpan funny and dark documentary about this region in Spain that is just mired in poverty and disease. It's really rough to watch. And I had forgotten that there's a dead child in it that they focus on for a large part. And when you're, I've said this a million times, but I can't, I can't do that. I mean, I, can, I do do it. I do watch it, but I can't be unemotional anymore. So I was just like crying in the back of the theater. It was too much for me because Boonwell really shows this child that's died of malnutrition and it's rough. But what I'm trying to get at is that Boonwell's surrealism was always from the beginning married to a commitment to engaging with the world as it was. Boonwell famously lost 14 years of filmmaking because of the Spanish Civil War and World War II. He devoted himself to helping the war effort and fighting fascism and fighting Franco. Dolly, famously, there's this story where Boonwell walked up to Dolly and was like, hey, our country is literally going down the tubes to fascists. We got to do something because there'd been this big massacre in a very famous Spanish square. And Dali was like sculpting a sculpture of a naked woman with a big butt. And Dali was <laughs> like, well, I'm more concerned with these buttocks right now. I'm an artist. And Boonwell was like, deuces. And he walked out and he and Dali had a fraught relationship. And really it began before that. But Boonwell said, yes, I'm a surrealist. But my surrealism is also me dealing with 
the world as I perceive it. And that's why I think Boonwell is a master. And I think I would make the argument that Lynch does that. The story that Boonwell told when I was doing my research was that he and Dolly agreed that they would throw out images to each other that really excited them. But if they got too didactic or it got too much about a story or they could tell that it was maybe they was something from their schooling or their background or their education that they were consciously aware of, they rejected it. So the image and what the scenes in Unchan Angelou catalyzed them, had to be cathartic, had to really excite them, but they didn't want to know why. So I think that's slightly different than they don't mean anything. Although Boonwell famously would always not want to talk about that, like David Lynch, and he would always reject when people were like, your stuff means this. And I get it when people would be too academic about it. But I think what's funny is when you watch Unchan Angelou, Boonwell could say whatever he wants to say, but when the guy tries to get to the woman and he's suddenly pulling two priests and they're dressed the way that Paris dress when you get a Jesuit education. I mean, okay, maybe that was an image that both, they didn't question it, but it just seems you're like, this guy can't get to her because he's weighed down literally by a Catholic upbringing in terms of sexuality. I always laugh out loud at that because I, you know, being a Catholic, I'm like, I get that. Even though I, I have always said this too, I don't have that. I was not raised to think that sex was bad or masturbation made you blind or any of that crazy stuff that happened pre-Vatican II. My family was very sexually open, like sex is good. What I got was just be with someone you love and be a good parent. That was it. Otherwise, they were like, enjoy sex. What I learned was every piano comes with a dead donkey on top. <laughs> That's an Oklahoma version of Christianity I'm not familiar with, but. Sorry, you don't understand my culture. <laughs> I need, I forgive me for being culturally ignorant. I was just going to say, I got the Merriam-Webster, pulled up the old dictionary. Uh, surrealism, the principles, ideals, or practice of producing fantastic or incongruous imagery or effects in art, literature, film, or theater by means of unnatural or irrational juxtapositions and combinations. I think on a storytelling level, we don't actually have as much surrealism. But I think on a style level, certain aspects of surrealism have become very heavily adopted into the way filmmaking works. Anytime a film like a, you know, a Sam Raimi or an Edgar Wright or something is using the camera and visual effects in a way to indicate a person's internal feelings as opposed to the external reality, I think you could argue that that's using surrealism to depict reality like in a juxtaposed way. Surreal imagery and iconography. The moment you said that, Connor, I thought, well, wait, horror. Horror is always using what Freud called the uncanny, which is very close to surrealism, where you see something and it's not quite right. Famously, Kubrick and The Shining just went all in on the uncanny constantly on the layout of the hotel, the twins, everything. You're like, I know that I kind of, but it also, this really weirds me out. I mean, obviously, I think Gilliam's another director who uses that kind of style stuff and sometimes delves into narrative surrealism. But the two things I wanted to shout out specifically are... Uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which I think is kind of both. I mean, it's very, it's like pop surrealism in a way. It's relatively understandable, but it's still like, there's some things in that movie that even having seen it multiple times, like I don't really know what's up with the old kid on the bike that keeps like passing by. I guess the implication is that that kid's been there forever. And then I also wanted to give a shout out to specifically the hell sequence in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. <laughs> 
which I think is definitely chocked full of surrealism, which is maybe my favorite depiction of hell in any movie. A really unsung sequence. If people haven't seen it, because Bill and Ted, you know, known the first movie is like this time travel stoner movie, but they don't ever smoke weed. In the second one, they go to hell and it's depicted as a series of hallways where they can choose their own like eternity. And these are depicted as like these very um, almost like German expressionist type rooms. There's an extended seventh seal sequence in here also. But yeah, good stuff. Yeah, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Great movie. I think maybe the best comedy sequel ever made. I, I think a lot about the thing, like the moments in, in movies that I've laughed the hardest at and the line delivery of death when he loses at, I think it's Battleship or something. And they're like, best three out of five. And he's like, damn straight. Yeah. That <laughs> delivery is impeccable. I had to look up Jerusalem because honestly, I don't know what that means. Connor so defined I, it just five minutes ago. Oh, well, I choose the monkey's movie head. That's a pretty uh, psychedelic trip on surrealism, I, I'm hoping. It's kind of like different scenarios happening all at once. It's just rules. This is, this is after the, the ending of their show. And so like, you know what? Let's just make a movie and just go weird out at, at it. It's like, what if what if Hard Day's Night was on LSD? That's basically the whole premise of the picture. Written by. Now, was it by was it written by Jack Nicholson? I just talk about dreams. Oh, th- that whole movie is a dream sequence. All of it. No, no, you're right. No, 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 you're you're absolutely right. This whole movie is just like a, a one big dream. And directed by Bob Rafflin. Yes, there you go. Bob Rafflin, Jack Nicholson before Five Easy Pieces, and also Bert Schneider. Produced yeah, produced. Who would go on to do Last Picture Show and tons of fascinating stuff. Yeah, Head is just amazing. Just like probably one of the best psychedelic movies ever made. Behind uh... Easy Rider and uh, Psych Out. You got Daniel to laugh there, Edwin. Hey man, so I, 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 I saw it on 35 millimeter at the <laughs> Egyptian theater, so it ruled. What do you think about Head again? It's one of the greatest uh, psychedelic movies of all time. Oh. See, you can't repeat. That's God punishing me for trying to. You said Head is amazing. Yeah, Head Head is amazing. I think many people would agree. Head is like one of the greatest things ever made. I agree. Oh, behave. <laughs> Keep going. That movie's just awesome, you know. Just Jack Nicholson and that whole group, just like they know what the hell they were doing, especially with the monkey's movie head. It's just uh so great. There's so many sequences in a movie that I can't like say. It just needs to be seen to be believed. That's a great call though, Edwin. That whole sixties uh genre of concert film. I mean, and then you actually you can take that surrealism into the Who's Tommy. You can take that into Pink Floyd's The Wall. That's got surreal imagery. So I think you're on to something there. That surrealism was absolutely adopted by sort of the, the rock and roll comedy and or the rock and roll opera. Exactly. Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, has that kind of surrealist off-kilter atmosphere sort of baked into like really, really long takes of seemingly mundane things that kind of become hypnotic and add layers as it goes on. That director's new movie, Memoria, with Tilda Swinton is also really good. And that one's interesting, too, because it will allegedly only be shown theatrical. It will never be released on physical media and never be released for streaming. It will just have road shows that it moves around and plays in. Initially, it was going to be for one week only. And then, to my understanding, I think it was one week and then never shown again. But... It was really hard to see, so now they're making it a thing where it'll return, but only in theaters. So it's kind of an interesting experience. And I kind of think that when my favorite surreal things are sort of hypnotic vibe movies, that if it catches you in the thing, you really don't. You quit thinking about time, and you don't think about plotting. You're just sort of in for the ride, and it kind of warps your brain in a way that the best illegal substances do. 
I also wrote Holy Motors Down is a kind of a blend of surrealism with a, I don't even know why, like a fantasy-ish take that's bizarre, but has a cohesive through line that kind of funnels it. Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin is a pretty safe pick, but that was one that I saw in theaters when I was living in Chicago, and I was so confused by the experience that I just went and saw it again immediately afterwards. But my new obsession from a few years ago is, which I think falls in line, is it's Don Hertzfeldt's now three-part series, World of Tomorrow, which is a series of short films about a little girl that's kind of being toured through the distant future in Hertzfeldt's signature style. And the first one is like genuinely perfect. It is an unbelievable experience. It's like 17 minutes. And a thing that I never considered like, oh, it'd be fun to have more of these. Like it existed like that. And then the second one came out, which has an incredible title. It's called World of Tomorrow Episode 2, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts, which was like, I think two years later. And then just two years ago in 2020, a third episode came out called The Absent Destinations of David Prime. It gets into memories and the concepts of like all these different selves that exist. And it's a wild ride. I think the entire experience is just a little bit over an hour. So I'd, I'd recommend seeking that out. They're all pretty magical. His earlier, shorter, even like comedy stuff too. We, we didn't really even talk about the way surrealism goes into comedy and all sorts of different movements. And animation. I mean, I was thinking about... Also, in that surreal thing, I did like a little clip. I didn't make it that long, but there's like a 30-second Tim and Eric clip. The Jeff Goldblum schlang. Yeah, uh, the schlang super seat. Surrealism has existed, I'm sure, from the beginning of time in art and narrative. You know, one of the the Ur Rosetta Stones for a lot of surreal stuff is Alice in Wonderland, which I don't know that gets talked about enough. But when you read Lewis Carroll and you read Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, they both set a template where the world is like our world, but not quite like our world. And you're able to go to that world and come back from that world. And people don't necessarily believe you've been to that world. And that, that made me think of Wizard of Oz which actually interesting Wizard of Oz also satisfies a surrealism because you've been introduced to characters in Dorothy's real life in black and white. And when she goes to Oz, suddenly they appear and you get the sense that this is a dream, but you also get the sense that Oz is a place. And then that made me think about animation like Looney Tunes. When you think about the surreal imagery in Looney Tunes, where like the coyote will be like perpetually chasing the roadrunner and never get the roadrunner, but then like will go over a cliff and won't know. I mean, I know this is real cliched now, but won't know that he's over the cliff until he looks down. So there's a really weird surreal law that if you ignore the laws of physics, you can cheat them for a while, which exists in Looney Tunes cartoons or how like something will change. He thought it was a balloon, but it'll change into an anvil. That's very sort of dream logic-y. And then that made me think about Miyazaki and Spirited Away, which is an Alice in Wonderland riff. And then other Miyazaki pieces that don't get talked about a lot, but that I love, like Porco Rosso, where the main character is just a pig for no really explainable reason, but he's just a pig pilot. And then Kiki's Delivery Service, where it's a normal European town, but there's a witch who starts a FedEx service because she's she just does like delivering baked goods as a witch with her cat. And then that got me to think about Satoshi Khan. And it got me to think about Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress and Paprika, which is about dreams. So there's it's interesting all the different ways. Boonwell talked his whole life about how dreams motivated everything he did and how he used to tell producers if a movie was too short, he'd say, don't worry about it. I'll throw in a dream sequence. He'd just throw in something he just dreamt. And the producers hated that. They, that never <laughs> made them feel 
comfortable, but he was like, ah, oh, it's 75 minutes. Don't worry about it. I had a dream last night. <laughs> He'd like throw in the dream sequence. Like now it's 81 minutes. And the producers are like, oh, okay. Thanks. Pretty much. <laughs> but I get that. But weirdly, Edwin, I just had a whole night of dreams a few days ago where Jack Nicholson was giving me all his knowledge. I don't really remember like all the, but he was like, Jack Nicholson was like, okay, remember this and acting is this. And he was like, and you got to have a good time. So he was showing me this. And I think he was telling me to do drugs. And I was like, I don't know, Jack. Hey, man, <laughs> I, I, I would take that opportunity, man. But Jack was all over the place and I kept getting up and going to bed. And then Jack was still there. And he was like, I'm not done. And then I was telling Marta a dream that my dad, who's been passed now, you know, for my dad, I dream about my dad a lot, but he'll come back in dreams. And my dad was like, okay, you got to get in this elevator. And he took me up to the tallest floor. And I dream about this building all the time. It's like a huge hotel building in my dream world and we got there and we looked out over these huge mountains and cliffs and in the mountains and cliffs and terrain were all these rebels that were going to shoot you down and there was a zip line and my dad was like you have to get across this zip line to get to the next level of your journey and I looked and I was like but it's impossible you're a hanging duck hanging onto the zip line going over these wild mountains of these marauders and my dad was like I know but you have to figure it out because you can't continue until you get across it and I was like but everyone Everyone's died who's done it. And my dad was like, I know, but you have to do it. You have to figure it out. And then I woke up and then I was like, I went back to bed and I was across the zip line and everyone was furious with me because they were like, you cheated. And I was like, no, am I on the other side? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, did anyone tell me that I couldn't do that? And they were like, no. And my dad was really proud of me because I totally avoided the marauders by waking up and going back. And I was on the other side and I continued into the mountains. And I was really proud of myself because it was a solution that no one had thought of, which was just simply waking up and going to bed across the marauder line and not getting picked out by the marauders. And I told Marta, my wife was like, hmm, that sounds like a dream you would have. Uh, so I don't know what she meant by that. Did Jack Nicholson give you the same advice that he gave Kobe Bryant to heat up and get loose? <laughs> Surrealism is such an interesting thing because I think it, you either really vibe with it or it is so completely off-putting that it ruins your experience. I find some people think anytime a movie gets surreal, I think recently seen Alex Garland's Men, and a lot of it is like hammering themes on the head. But some of it, you know, operates in the surrealist space. But it's, it's, it's always interesting to see reactions of people who feel very strongly that the surrealist stuff doesn't work at all. That they find it's really off-putting and pretentious just seems to be the word that gets thrown at it. So surrealism as a concept in the realm of, like, comprehending art has always been fascinating to me. I, well, actually, I, I, had, I have one more thing on, on the surrealism. Because you said Wizard of Oz. And I, I'm going to say, have you seen the version with uh, Pink Floyd's album Dark Side of the Moon plays? If you play at the beginning and you just rock that thing all the way through, it like matches the movie perfectly. And with Pink Floyd and that movie, it just takes the whole other level, man. We should, we should probably do that. You should do that. It, it's easy to do. You have to start when the logo, when Mitchell Goldmayer pops out and play the album and you're good. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty psychedelic too. Here's the cheat code to dreams, by the way, guys. If you can get nine to 10 hours of sleep and probably don't, you know, indulge in too much chemical stuff just like sleep clean for three or four days nine to ten hours you will rock some dreams here's an idea don't tell me what to do yeah craig let us dream our own f***ing dreams and i'll continue to be tired yeah and i'll wake up at 5 a.m you're right though marta was telling me last night i need to stop being controlling yeah you do that a lot except for edwin i actually i think that's a good move oh you go to hell daniel i'll walk i'll face heaven and walk backwards into hell with my 
double deuces raised towards you, Edward. Pop culture and final thoughts. I'll just open with a Jack story, which, I, you know, God bless Jack Nicholson. Man. We all need Jack Nicholson. I've told this story many times, but um, I had a friend or, a, you know, more somebody I knew from film school who worked in a video collective with Heath Ledger, of all people. And Heath Ledger would direct music videos. And so I guess Heath Ledger would tell this story he loved to tell about meeting Jack Nicholson when he first came from Australia. And they were at a big party and Heath Ledger saw Jack Nicholson sitting on some steps, you know, outside the party. And Heath Ledger was like, oh, I don't want to be that guy, but I, you know, who knows if we'll ever work with him or see him again. So he goes up to Jack Nicholson and he he says, you know, Mr. Nicholson, I just want to say, you know, I'm here from Australia. I'm very inspired by your work. I know I'm not going to take any of your time. I don't want to be that guy, but I just want to thank you very much for everything you've done for actors and you're an inspiration. And Nicholson was like, Heath, look, I appreciate it, but the acid's kicking in right now. And I just, I really can't talk. <laughs> so then Heath Ledger was like, okay. <laughs> and then Jack. <laughs> He was heating up before getting loose. I'll shout out the party game Wavelength, which I played at my little birthday party I had recently and was a blast. It's like a party game where two groups of people, you use like a wheel that has a target on it that only one person sees and it sort of exists on this dial and you'll get these cards that are like bad actor to good actor or holy to unholy or uh, fashionable to unfashionable and you'll have to make up like let's say the targets all the way to fashionable or unfashionable you would say something that's really unfashionable and it's just a really fun party game and you can find me at twitch.tv slash Cruz and why should we play D&D Tuesday evenings twitch.tv slash nerdhala for this one I'll talk about a chain of movies that I watched with Connor and crew, which was MacGruber, Fateful Findings, and Money Plane, which was my first experience with the infamous Money Plane. It's a special thing. I think you need to have your buds around when you watch it because trying to watch it alone, not going to be the same. But if there's someone in your life that you love, you're seeing someone new, I think sit them down and watch Money Plane together and their reaction to that will give you some green flags or some red flags. And I think your relationship moves forward from there. I blame Daniel for this because he won't shut the f up about it. The sequel announcement came yesterday. I know! I know. I saw Paddington. The first one, it's okay. It's okay. Second one, okay, I kind of liked it a lot in the first one. But that director should find his own different style because he's obviously mimicking Wes Anderson. So I'm going to put out there. Daniel, did you just say P3? P3. It's called Paddington in Peru. It's coming. Unfortunately, not being directed by Paul King because he's doing the Wonka movie, which is a weird choice, but he apparently pitched the Wonka movie. So now I'm really curious what this pitch was. But I actually wrote down a quote in preparation for Edwin to share this, which Paul King talking about the new director who worked on all the other ones, but this is his debut. And he said, Douglas' work is never less than astounding, funny, beautiful, heartfelt, imaginative, and totally original. Aunt Lucy, Paddington's uh, aunt in Paddington and Paddington 2, Aunt Lucy once asked us to please look after this bear. I know Dougal or Dougal will do so admirably. A lovely sentiment for P3. Very sad. I had a great Twitter campaign that was OTT for P3. Didn't end up working out, but it was always P4. Yeah, P2 though, Hugh Grant's a revelation. It's incredible. And I'm sorry, Edwin, you can continue if I cut you off. Yeah, yeah, you did. So yeah, I, you I, know I the saw, other thing I, I really I love about Paddington 2? I saw both of them. They're okay. And I also saw Anchorman, The Legend of Rock and Burgundy. Super, super, super funny movie. Then I saw Anchorman 2. Did not do well at all. That movie is not funny at all. Kind of ruined what the first one had. 
this one was like, yeah, we're making a sequel, and that's it. So just watch the first Anchorman movie. Will Ferrell is a national treasure, and it's nice hair and cool 70s look mustache. And uh, next week, Secret Movie Club Podcast 115. Tom Cruise, the podcast. That's Woo! right, Secret Movie Clubbers. Maverick, Dead Reckoning, part one. We try to be dynamic and always do different things. We get an idea, we try to run with it, not just getting rut and we've never done a podcast devoted to a performer and the mystery and the contradictions and the paradox the yin yang that is tom cruise possibly the last movie star in some ways we want to get into because there's something there that feels important to us about maybe the state of filmmaking and the in front of the screen the behind the screen the professional versus the personal and top gun too maverick is killing it and everybody is loving it it has reignited the debate about this guy makes some of the best popcorn movies, has a commitment to making great popcorn movies that is admirable. I think very few people, it was just celebrated in France. <laughs> the people at the Cannes Film Festival went crazy for Top Gun 2 Maverick as a return to some level of, and I'm none of this is said ironically, by the way, a return to some level of expectation of quality of cinema. And yet... The contradictions of Tom Cruise personally and Scientology and why that's not acknowledged. And it seems like an interesting conversation to be had. So that will be next week. As always, this podcast was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz, Chief Creative Content Officer, who's now going to remind us really quickly about what's coming up. Future Connor. Once again, come to our summertime live poetry and Q&A with the director event this Thursday. And once more, do not believe Edwin's lies. What? Days of Thunder? Finally, I got some real cinema going on in here, man. As always, thank you, everybody. You can find out about everything that we do on secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. Again, we're trying to build out something for everybody, no matter where you are in the world, if you want to be part of our community of movie lovers and movie makers. And that's it, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Bye, sisters. I love you, fam. If you can make some flyers for it, I could go around, I, I could go out there and uh, hang some up. Yeah. No, sounds good. Would you be willing to dress up as a pink rabbit? Yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to dress as a movie guy and oh. drop what off. What does a movie guy dress like? What the f*** is this? It's a pink rabbit. Is this? But, or you could dress as a pink rabbit. Yeah, I'm not doing and that. you could have a basket. Craig. And then you could leave little Easter eggs. I got to smell my candle. It's stressing me out.